Welcome to Theatre Voice, a podcast about performance from the VA. The last month has been quite a good one for Lalita Chakrabarti. In March, she received an OBE at Buckingham Palace, and at last week's Olivier Awards, her phenomenal adaptation of Life of Pi won five out of its nine nominations. A story involving a tiger, a boat, and the Pacific Ocean is not an obvious choice of novel for stage treatment. In fact, nor was her previous piece, Invisible Cities, a novel in which Marco Polo describes a series of fantastical cities to Kublai Khan. But Lolita turned both both of these books into extraordinary theatrical events, making the absolute most of what can happen in a theatre. Despite more than three decades as an actor, Lolita's turn to writing is relatively recent, but it was a career shift which announced itself loudly and brilliantly when her debut play Red Velvet premiered in 2012. It tells the story of Ira Aldridge, who was played in the original production by her husband, actor Adrian Lester, and it's since had dozens of productions and it's been endlessly studied by schools and universities. Lolita's also a constant presence on TV screens, from the BBC's submarine thriller Vigil to Amazon's massive fantasy epic Wheel of Time, but there was one particularly memorable early performance I was desperate to talk to her about, as you will hear in this interview. So here is Lolita Chakrabarti. It's been a pretty extraordinary few days, but also month and also few years for you, really. I mean, even just thinking about the last month, on Sunday, you won five Olivier Awards for yes, Life of Five. Yes, it was all me. <laughs> yes, we did. The show won five, yeah. And then also, last month, you got an OBE. I did, yeah. I mean, that's a pretty extraordinary start to 2022. How are you processing all of that? I'm, I'm smiling like from my feet to the top of my head and beyond. I'm just, uh, yeah, I feel very thrilled, very thrilled and really pleased. And uh, yeah, it's a lovely feeling. With Life of Pi, it, it was nominated for, for nine. It obviously has had such an amazing reception, just mm-hmm. a massive slew of five star reviews, both in Sheffield and then in the West End. You know, were you sort of thinking, oh, you know there'll be nominations coming were you feeling confident or or do you just not think about that kind of thing you know I'll be honest I really don't think about that kind of thing yeah Um, I I mean awards are funny aren't they I remember seeing Bill Nye uh, I can't remember what the awards were but he won and he went up on stage and he summed it up for me really he said um that I always thought awards were a load of old tosh until now (laughs) yeah (laughs) that's absolutely right because we've all sat through them and gone who won what yeah uh, and I'm aware some people will be thinking that about me and my show as well. Um, <laughs> yeah. you know, when, when you're there, it's thrilling. And when you're not, you're like, ah, well, they couldn't see how brilliant I was. Right. So. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I bet. I bet. And also, you know, like there's always a kind of difference in the way it's perceived from the outside in terms of everyone sees Life of Pi as this kind of instant success. Right. It kind of appears in the West End. It's suddenly got loads of five star reviews, whatever. But obviously that's not how it's been for you. You've been living with it for, what, five years, something like that. Um, So it's been a much, much slower process, I imagine. A much slower process. And actually that, you know, from from starting from getting the job to actually being in the West End and winning those prizes, uh, that's quite quick, I think, five years. You know, a lot of my other projects have taken much longer. Yeah. So, um, yeah, it's you feel every step, every moment, every doubt, every fear um, yeah. a certain way and you've no idea where you're going with it, really. So, I, I mean, I just, I wanted to start by just kind of, you know, acknowledging that that brilliant success um, for the show and for you uh, over the last 
last month or so but actually the place I actually want to start and I'm sorry about this is okay. is why I know you is why I originally know you which is from number time <laughs> because I I grew up with number time oh my god are you one of the counting babies <laughs> I absolutely am one of the counting babies you were so I, I was glued to you on number time between the ages of it must have been three and six oh. so it was absolutely perfect time and can you count just about oh. I, can, I can I can go up as far as the series went which I think I think was to 20 or something yeah I'm going to take credit for that too. <laughs> beyond that it's a bit hazy <laughs> but I I it's it's funny because I remember coming across you the first time in in theatre I think I saw you in something on stage and I was like I'm sure I recognize you <laughs> and then it clocked that it was number time and it was so funny but it really I mean it, it's funny th- those programs the impact they have and the way that they just emblazon themselves onto onto children's memories is extraordinary yeah, totally because uh, it was a really successful counting show yeah. and um I think we did three or four s- series of it um and it was so well thought out and it had sketches and I presented it and uh, I mean, you know, it was really early in my career and it was a great earner. I got repeats in those days. So yeah. it was very exciting to uh, be part of that. And you're absolutely right about the influence. Influence. I mean, um, Floella Benjamin was at the Olivier's and presented one of the awards. Yeah. And for most of us of a certain age, she presented Play School and she yeah. looked at the Royal Albert Hall, you know, the five or 6,000 people there and said, hello, my babies. And I thought, <laughs> absolutely right. We've all learned about Little Ted and Hamble from her, you know, so. Yeah, yeah. it's funny. I mean, ha- what, where was that in your career? That So was it quite soon after you you'd graduated? Because you, you went to RADA, didn't you? I went to RADA, yeah. It was probably about five or six years down the line. So I came out of RADA and I did uh, seven years of theatre. Um, and then I got, I think, I don't know, I don't think it was my first telly job. I had other little tiny little guest bits, but um, it was one of those early ones in the first few years. It's a weird one in in a, a sense because it's not necessarily a straightforwardly acting job, is it? It's kind of yeah, you know presenting job cool. is quite a different thing. So yeah. was that something that you were trying to actively pursue at the time? It was just that the job popped up and you thought that looks great, I'll do it. Exactly that it popped up and it came through my agent and uh, I thought yeah why not? No, it, it never occurred to me that it would be a different strain and I didn't go that way in the end. I think it's a very specific skill, isn't it? To present. Yeah. Yeah. um but it was uh yeah it was I got it through my acting agent do, do people talk to you about it at all still they don't you know I mean oh. it's interesting maybe they uh admire from afar maybe maybe <laughs> they have no idea that I presented that um I I no I haven't had you're my first grown up who has come up sorry I know, I know it's thrilling thrilling <laughs> <laughs> Sorry to stare the memories, especially after you know, like five Olivier wins on Sunday. I'll take you back to 1993 or <laughs> um, Well, so uh, let's talk about some of those early days as well, because it, it sounds like it was very, very early on that you thought, yeah, I'm going to be an actor. Yeah. Yeah. I grew up in Birmingham and I, um, I think I wanted to be an actor before I knew what an actor was. So I just loved drama at school, uh, at the different youth groups and things that I did I just loved drama and then by the time I was 14 I'd worked out it's acting that's what it is and I could be an actor possibly mm. uh, and then when I was 18 I, I went to Rado. Um I mean you make it sound quite easy <laughs> did it feel like that <laughs> no oh my goodness no I 
I, I didn't think, I, I, I didn't even know you could train to be an actor. I didn't understand any of it. So I was very, um, not naive, just uneducated about it. So I had a fabulous drama teacher at my school and I was going to go to university and do English and drama. And she gave me the um, application for RADA and she said, have a go. I think you could, you know, have, have a go at it. And I said, there's no point, you know, I'm never going to get in. They'd only take five people. And she said, just try, what's to lose? So I did it. And from the first audition where I suddenly realised, my God, you can study this all day for years and, and learn in advance and it's a craft. Yeah. Um, I was completely sold on it. I wanted to go from the first moment. Um, but of course, you don't know if you're going to get in. You, the competition is very, very tough. It's really tough now. It was very tough then. But I was lucky. How did you find getting work afterwards? Was that, did it come or, or, or was it tricky? Uh, I left with an agent, a really good agent, which was great. Um, but in terms of getting work, I got my first, I left in July and I got my first job in the autumn, which doesn't okay. sound very much. No, yeah at all at the time I was like oh my god will anything come you know um but no and I and I, I worked pretty steadily you know I, I did lots of theatre and then I went into tv after about seven years and but there are always gaps always gaps yeah. of weeks months you know which you just have to sustain yourself and wait and hope for the next job so at what point did did writing come into uh your life you know both as, as, as something that you enjoy doing, but then also professionally? Uh, only in retrospect uh, did I realise I had written when I was at school. So I'd, I used to do public speaking competitions when I was at school and write five-minute speeches on a certain topic, beginning, middle and end, you know, all that sort of structural stuff that had to prove an argument and, mm. and persuade you into something. Uh, and then when I was at RADA, my final show, which we would do to present uh, to uh, directors and producers to see if they wanted to hire us, was terrible. It was a terrible, terrible play. And me and my fellow actresses were so appalled by it and thinking, what do we do? So I went home every night and rewrote it. And I'd never written anything before. I just thought it can't be worse than this. And we ended up more or less doing the version that I wrote. I don't know if it was better, who knows, but... Was that, and it was an existing play that you... It's just, an existing play by quite a famous writer that I'm not <laughs> going to mention, um, who's very successful, you know, but it wasn't his best. <laughs> Fair enough, yeah. <laughs> um, uh, and so about, I'd say about six years out of college, I started writing because I was bored between acting work. I thought, what do I do? I'd done... Um, I did a pottery class for a term. I did a romantic, English romantic poetry class for a term. Mm. I thought, but this isn't going to sustain me for the years ahead. Mm. And I thought, let me try and keep my creative juices flowing and see if I can tell a story. And so I just began. So what was the first professional piece of writing that you, that you did, that you worked on, and then that ended up, you know, being, being shown somewhere or performed somewhere? Uh, sort of not quite professional, but I wrote short stories for a, a charity called Interact that is run by and for actors. Uh, well, it's not for actors. It's it's with actors for uh, people who have suffered strokes. Mm. And professional actors go into hospital and read to stroke patients um, these three-minute stories, three pages, beginning, middle and end, maybe a bit of music or song in it to stimulate somebody who's been through this terrible time. And I was introduced to this company, Interact, and uh, they needed stories, and they needed stories with a diverse point of view. I went, mm -hmm. yeah, I can do that. I can do that. So I, um, I wrote 
a few stories for them and they bought one for 200 pounds and i remember oh. thinking oh, i can get paid <laughs> that's amazing yeah. um, so so i wrote lots of stories for them over the years but the first drama that i did was a five part um uh, radio drama for um women's hour and it was a five part 15 minutes uh, uh times five of a um uh, I guess an adaptation or a version of Satyajit Ray's film Devi, which I mm. call the goddess, which is what that translates as. And um, we did that on the radio. It's interesting because both, you know, the the Women's Hour piece that you did and um, and the reversioning of this, whoever this famous playwright was at <laughs> drama school, they're both uh, very early on adaptations in a sense. I mean, the drama school one, yes. you know, <laughs> maybe... <laughs> You wouldn't necessarily call it an adaptation, but a, a, re, a reversioning or an improvement or whatever. But you know that that's that's certainly like a through line that's that's continued in in yeah, your work and and yeah. has has really really uh, just sort of c- come to fruition in an amazing way in in both uh, Invisible Cities and Life of Pi. And is that a, a thing that you consciously pursued? Is that something that you thought I love adapting stuff? I I want to do that. Not consciously, but I suppose now you say it. Yes, obviously subconsciously. Adrian Lester, my other half, said to me uh, early on that if you keep writing from your own engine, you might run out of story or you might use up all your own original source material. And if you do an adaptation, it gives you story, gives you character, and then you can infuse it with what you know. And actually, it's a, it was a really good piece of advice because I like doing both. I really love it when I get um, a book or a film or, or, or a story to interpret because the beginning middle and end is given to you the characters are given to you but then you have to fill in the gaps or solve the problems which is difficult actually because you have a real um, responsibility to the piece of work that you deliver what is written in the first place but in a form but writing my own stuff is very freeing but you have to do everything absolutely everything and layer it layer it layer it until it's as substantial as the story you're adapting. So it, they're both great forms. Well, it, I mean, interestingly, Red Velvet, it, it, which is, you know, the, the play you wrote about Ira Aldridge, it, it's based on, it's based in historical fact. So, you know, it, in a sense that that's sort of coming from a story that already exists anyway, it doesn't necessarily have the story arc structure, which you, you know, you had to find a way to create that. But um it's the, the characters are there still, I guess. And and then well, it you also... You say that, I don't think... It's it's really interesting to me now when I read things online about Ira Aldridge. Mm. Some of the interpretations of who he was are based on what I made in the play. Because That's they're amazing. Not, they're not facts, actually. I took the historical facts for sure and selected the ones that suited the story. But in terms of characters, we don't know who these people were. Yeah, that that's really interesting. I, I mean, it, it sounds like the process of writing that was very, very research heavy as well. Yeah. Oh my god, unbelievably so. But also because nobody wanted it, so I was like, really? you know, I was knocking on a lot of doors for a really long time trying to get this play on. I hadn't written anything at all that was, you know, in the theatre. So people were suspicious of me for that. But also, um, yeah, I wasn't I wasn't uh, allowed through the door with this story for quite a long time. So the research period got, yeah, it got heavy, a, a lot of time for me to research it. So how long did it take to write to write that that play? Uh, I wrote the play for seven years before it was Oh, on. wow. 
Wow. Yeah, I did a lot of drafts. I was trying to find the story, but I also was trying to find the theatre. There was we approached a lot of theatre. I I was um, reading or listening something something where you're talking about how there there was so much there that you, you that you couldn't even get in anyway. You know, like the fact that who was it who rode a horse into the theatre? Oh uh, yeah, Edmund Keane. Yeah, <laughs> but I put that in the film. I've written the good. film, and that is in the film. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> that's good. I mean, it's probably it's not necessarily easier to do on film, but it's it's maybe easier than doing it on a stage, yes, <laughs> someone riding so. a horse around. Um, oh well, so is the is there a film version sort of in in the works then? Constantly in the wings, yes, mm-hmm. waiting for the go, uh, getting closer and closer and edging. I mean, the you know the business is uh, precarious at best but yeah. after COVID, more so. So I'm ever hopeful. I feel like once the film has been made then I can rest on it. Then that's done. Then I'm done with either. Yeah. Oh, which is sad in a way, but then also it is a play that, that when it, when it did finally get on stages did seem to just really spark a reaction and has been, I mean, it's been on pretty constantly in various forms and iterations in the, what is it? 10 years, I think since it first went on. Exactly. 10 years. Yeah. 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 It's been on loads actually, which is so thrilling. Yeah. And uh, all the drama schools have done it recently. Yeah. It's had about, I don't know, 40 productions in America. And That's it's on amazing. the syllabus for drama A-level and universities. And, yeah, no, it's uh, it always makes me laugh when, well, not makes me laugh, makes me proud when academics are discussing it in an article and saying Chakrabarti meant this, Chakrabarti meant that. Yeah. I was like, oh, I mean, yeah. how exciting. <laughs> I mean, it's, it's extraordinary. I mean, that is so rare for any play that it can have that kind of afterlife, let alone someone's first, you know, first play. It, yeah. It's an amazing thing. Incredible piece of writing. And then more incredible pieces have followed. So in the last few years, we've had, uh, Invisible Cities, right? Which was yeah. this mad, what Italo Calvino novel, which yes. anyone would take a look at that and think, I'm probably not going to adapt <laughs> that for the stage. <laughs> Do you know, I was adapting that and Life of Pi at the same time. And uh, I don't know, it's curious, isn't it, who you are subconsciously? Because I, yeah, they were both crazy books to do anyway, let alone at the same time. And the Italo, I mean, Life of Pi, I loved as a punter when I read it, when it first came out. But the Calvino, I didn't know at all. And when I read it, I was like, wow, okay, this is a mad piece of work. But some people I met said it was their seminal novel of their lives. And other people like me didn't know it at all. And I was intrigued by that response to it. But then, I mean, what are your thoughts when you open that up and and you realise that it's got to somehow end up in the real world on a on a stage of sorts because it wasn't quite you know it wasn't straightforwardly staged it wasn't traditionally yeah. staged um so explain a bit about the production and, and and how how your thought process worked when you were thinking about the adaptation well it wasn't a straight play which is probably why I was so drawn to it so I was approached the director was Leo Warner who uh, runs 59 productions which is a digital projection uh, like specialist company and just to put it in some kind of context, they did the projection for the 2012 Olympics. So they're big scale projectionists. And he and his team wanted uh, to do something about architecture, which is the Calvino book is all about um, Kublai Khan and Marco Polo having an opium fueled discussion 
uh, which doesn't go anywhere, which is like, do we exist? Yes, I think we do exist. No, I don't exist. And then no- nothing gets answered. It's like that. And then there are 55 short chapters of poetic verse that describes a different city in um, Kublai Khan's magical empire. And these are fantastical places, you know, under the earth, in the clouds, buried in water, just crazy, crazy, beautiful, weird places. Um, and Leo wanted to put this on stage in a site-specific venue in Manchester at the International Festival, which was um, Mayfield, which is an old uh, train depot, with 22 dancers from Rombert, who are contemporary dancers, and um, Sidi Larbi Sherkawi, who's a very uh, esteemed Belgian choreographer, doing dance and a play in the middle of it. So I was like, okay, that's uh, intriguing. <laughs> you think I'd be scared, wouldn't you? But I, I was like, oh, that's really interesting. And I love collaboration. And I, I, I love the possible theatricality of movement, sound, music. I, I, I really love all that. If you've got a good story at the heart of it, I think it can make everything sing. Mm-hmm. So I was really drawn by the scale of it. And one of the things I said to Leo, but you know, at the end of this book, uh, the world explodes, <laughs> right? The world explodes. And I said, well, how, how ambitious should I be with how I'm writing? And he said, just make me write it and we'll make the impossible happen. And so that's what I did. That's sort of a dream. That's kind of what <laughs> any writer would want to hear, isn't it, yeah. in a way? Yeah. Um, it, yeah, I mean, the, the funny thing is that despite how different Life of Pi and Invisible Cities are, you say you're working on them at the same time and they do share a kind of sensibility of just kind of pushing to the limits what what theatre kind of can and should be, I guess, in the, in the sense of Life of Pi just used everything that you could possibly use to make a piece of work exist on a stage. You've got puppets and you've got a boat and, and he jumps into the ocean and you've got beautiful score and you've got incredible lighting and projection design, video design. And, and extraordinary acting but it never that never was at the sacrifice of just very crystalline storytelling mm. and it felt like that was just such a a smart approach and I think that there could be a thousand adaptations of Life of Pi that would not have done something that in concept is actually so simple um as that and I think it felt very necessary it felt amazing um that's great to hear I think I mean it the, the different projects I've done and the scale of them and, and the, the size, some of these huge productions are then small. I think story, story is essential in everything. Yeah. In everything I see, even when I see dance or I hear music, there has to be some kind of, it doesn't have to be a literal story necessarily, but something that I can emotionally follow. Yeah. Then you'll get, you get hooked in, don't you? Yeah, exactly. Exactly. I mean, you know, Life by Invisible City is very different in terms of adaptation, but are there kind of are there kind of fixed rules that you're developing in, in, when you're doing an adaptation? Things that should always happen when you're translating something to the stage. I've sort of found it um, just through practice and instinct. So I I write very much as an actor. I, I write as somebody who is feeling the story. So I I can't always articulate how I um, how I feel it. I suppose. Um, but in a, in a practical sense, I take a book and I highlight everything that I think is interesting, that's either story interesting, character interesting, or is philosophically interesting. And then I, I cut and paste it literally into a document under 
different sections. So for Life of Pi, I, I, I highlighted it all and then I cut and pasted it into family, God, zoo, faith, shipwreck, um, philosophy. Um, and then I work out from the book, you know, what the story is and what I think the story, the arc, beginning, middle and end, and then put it all into order and then start. So I do that with all the adaptations that I'm doing. And then when you've done that, you're still only, you know, X percent of the way towards it being a production. I mean, what was the process like of getting Life of Pi on its feet um, in Sheffield? Uh, so I, I always insist on doing a first draft without any voices in my head. So I don't want to speak to a director or anybody. So I just want to do it on my own. So often directors aren't um, attached when I'm writing to start with. Uh, Leo was the obviously hired me to do Invisible. So that was a different thing. Um, but the other projects, not. And um, I want to hear my own voice. And once I've got my own voice, then everybody else can pile in because writing as opposed to acting where everyone's going, that's great. Could you try this? Could you try that? Writing is just, this doesn't work, this doesn't work, this doesn't work. And so you need to be quite sturdy in what you, you're feeling about it to start with before everyone piles in with their thoughts. So I think I probably did about three or four drafts of the play. Um, and then uh, we did uh, workshops. So it's a, it's a commercial producer, even though we started at Sheffield. And the, the, the sort of luxury of that is we had money to develop. And uh, so we did three, I think, three workshops or four workshops where we worked uh, just with, with actors on the script, um, on the physical elements of telling the story. So Finn Caldwell, who's our puppet and movement director, came in very early as well, because he obviously has to imagine what the puppets are going to be, how are they going to look? and um and what would work and and to inform the story so from a very early stage i was working with max webster director and finn going right so you can't i don't know you can't be searching for food when you haven't got water water is more important than food so let's put water before food uh and then and then how do we you know we have to have this element and that element um yeah so we did that and, and, and there were three workshops that so and they built in scale. So the first workshop we did where we were just trying out my script, you know, we were the actors were using everything in the room. So there was a costume rail and there were uh, hangers, wire hangers were being penguins and, you know, uh, tissue boxes were being anything. We were just using every element just to see if the story worked. And by the third or fourth workshop, we had a, a, a boat made for us in the room so that we could see how do you get like four animals and pie on the boat and each animal is going to have several puppeteers. How do you do that on a stage and not feel like we're just peopling a boat with actors? Um, and then by the time we got to Sheffield, the script wasn't locked at all. So I rewrote like mad throughout yeah. the whole rehearsal process. And obviously the actors who came on board in Sheffield had a lot of thoughts and uh, always really valid even if the idea that they're presenting isn't the solution the fact they feel uncomfortable in a moment is really valid to go yeah. why are you uncomfortable what what's not working um so it was a it was very much i mean it was exhausting but exhilarating but when you had that first draft that kind of the one where it was just your voice in your head and and, and no one tampering or, or feeding their own ideas into it did, how much of a sense did you have that you know, the animals were going to be puppets. This was going to be done through video design and that kind of thing. 
Um, well, the producer Simon and I talked about what could we imagine? And obviously you've got Warhorse at one side and you've got Lion King on the other, which are the big successful animal puppet sort of shows. Um, and we wanted to invent something different. Uh, and then when Max uh, came on board with Finn, I mean, it's just, that's the challenge, right? How do we do it? There were talks of, is it one person with a, I don't know, a sort of thing, uh, animal costume not not that sounds terrible like a onesie but like you know sort of a <laughs> dress or something like lion king uh, what are we doing uh and then that was that was finn and nick barnes who designed mm. uh, the puppets with max's input and the sort of need of the story yeah um yeah that was my favorite bit was where pie jumps into the ocean <laughs> and, yeah. and, and you, for a second you because you're so absorbed in the world yeah. He jumps off the edge of the boat and jumps in the ocean and disappears. And you're like, oh, yeah, he's jumped in the ocean. And then you're like, what? what? How has he jumped in the ocean? We're in the theatre. And then you realise how simple it is and think, oh, it's brilliant. Yeah. It had this kind of layered reaction to it, which was amazing, hearing that in the auditorium, the kind of processing of it. It was brilliant. It was um, hand as well, I think, that moment, because we've seen everybody walking across that part of the stage. So you just yeah. don't expect that that is possible. <laughs> exactly it really it's just a brilliant bit of um illusion it's so it's so good um so a minute ago you said you know you you feel like you write as an actor do you think that that you act as a writer at all now that you have you know become such an established writer yeah I try, I try not to act as a writer because I'm aware that it it can be a bit off-putting that I you know I write my stuff and, and other people write their stuff so I have to be careful that I'm not um it doesn't go the other way if I'm asked, I will uh, give my opinion. But otherwise, I, it's made me more, res- not that I was ever disrespectful of writers' um, words, but I'm more respectful of how long it takes to decide on the right words. Um, and so I really try to get them right. Now. In TV, I do a lot of TV. So when, you know, I really try to either work out how, what they mean from underneath it, or to advise. And often people are really... Um, you know, as an actor, if you suggest something, people are like, oh, yeah, yeah, that's great. Uh, well, you know, you, you are doing a lot of TV and I've seen you pop up just loads recently and some really good stuff as well. Vigil, oh, I love yeah. Vigil was amazing. And then Wheel of Time. Oh. That was really exciting to see you in the first episode. So yeah. for the Wheel of Time fans, you're, who are you? Marin Elvere, right? Yeah. That, and so mother of Egwene, very, oh. very important character. Yeah. Um, proprietress of... Uh, what's it called the wine spring the wine spring that's i can't yeah. remember it's a couple of years ago now we yeah it must have been ages ago that you actually yeah. filmed it massive massive series that as well it's colossal yeah, yeah huge i mean I'm, i am like you said only in the first one but it was epic stuff yeah, yeah. amazing sets beautiful like huge crews just yeah really and they have a lot of material that, to work with if anyone's yeah. seen that series of books it sort of takes up most of the bookshelf um so w- now that you, you know, you are so established as a writer and you have these kind of projects um, that, that are ongoing, like Life of Pi, but then also presumably new ones that you're working on, mm. has that affected the way that you would take on work as an actor or the kinds of things you take on or even just the amount? Um, it's kind of complicated, really, because mm. writing works so far in advance. You have to say, yes, in June, I'll be available for a two week workshop, uh, which I never used to book myself in for anything. Um, but I have to do that now because yeah. these things are too substantial. 
Um, and actually, my acting agent is brilliant. She goes, it's fabulous you're doing all this stuff. We'll just let people know. And with acting, it's a tricky old thing. I mean, I do the things I want to do. I make the space. They're very, they're, they are movable. If I, if I got an acting job that I absolutely had to do, um, unless it was a, a production was happening, obviously I can't shift to production, but if there was workshops, I could possibly move dates. So I try to do all of it. I'm very greedy. I try to do all of it because I spent quite a lot of time in the, uh, not quite in the wilderness, but, you know, sort of scrabbling about and trying to make it happen and here it's coming to me. So yeah, enjoy I, it. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. But then what does that mean for, because, you know, as you mentioned that Adrian, your husband is, is, you know, another very well-known person in acting and theatre industry and TV. And I mean, what does that mean for dinner table conversations? Just constantly (laughs) drama, drama, drama. Uh, In the right way. Yeah. Well, we're talking about drama outside of ourselves. In the home. Um, Yeah. I mean, it is, it's, it's, fabulously busy and it's um lucky and uh opportunity i mean i remember years and years ago uh and actor, do you know trevor etienne mm. you do mm. uh he's been in america for quite a long time but he gathered together a, a, when i'd just come out of drama school he gathered together a huge uh crowd of actors of color to stand outside the bfi at the time which is all the maybe the fi- film council i don't know what it was called then with a sign that said opportunity and it was about, come on, come on, people, show us, give us a chance, otherwise we can't get through. And so now here we are, me and Adrian, with opportunity. So it's um, it's a nice thing to talk about. <laughs> yeah, it's brilliant. Well, I, I, I'm glad to see it. And I think everyone seeing the work that you make is, uh, is glad to see it too. Um, and th- I mean, uh, you know, obviously the next natural thing for you and Adrian to do is a musical because I know from number time that you can sing. <laughs> and Adrian's won an Olivier for it, so... You know. I think he might be in a slightly different league, but I'm glad you're putting me next to him. <laughs> but uh, otherwise, that's it's been very, very nice to talk to you, Lalisa, and thanks for taking the time for it. You too. Thanks very much, Tim. That was me, Tim Bano, talking to Lolita Chakrabarty. Theatre Voice is an audio archive of conversations about British theatre. If you go to theatrevoice.com, you can find hundreds more conversations with incredible people. The producers are Tim Bano and Helen Gush. Thanks for listening. Listener.